Hello and welcome to Prism of the Past, a weekly series about historical events, people, and situations from the fascinating to the forgotten. I'm the Illuminati, and today we're going to be talking about something called the Codex Gigas, also known as the Devil's Bible, not to be confused with the Satanic Bible. After diving into how the image of Satan has been changed throughout the years, as well as the Satanic Panic, I decided I wanted to make the Codex Gigas its own separate video. And don't worry, I saw some of your guys' comments and opinions that I just wasn't going to ignore this whole massive medieval manuscript that we've got going on. So without any further ado, let's get right into it and talk about how the Codex Gigas came to be, what it is, and its influence. The Codex Gigas is famous for two main reasons. The first is that it's believed to be the world's largest preserved medieval manuscript. Codex Gigas literally means giant book. And it also contains a huge full page portrait of the devil. The devil's Bible is 36 inches tall, 20 inches wide, and 8.7 inches thick. It contains 310 pages made from vellum from 160 donkeys. Vellum being prepared animal skin or membrane. Other sources explain that it's actually 620 pages, but 310 leaves, or how we might think of sheets of paper. It supposedly contained 320 leaves at one point, but the last 10 were cut out and removed at some point in time. It also weighs a whopping 165 pounds. Although the author of the Codex Gigas is unknown, according to one source, thanks to a note on the first page, we know that the Palazzia Monastery was the first known owner of the Codex Gigas. However, it is unlikely that the manuscript was produced there. The monastery was far too small and impoverished to undertake such a project. The note says that in 1295, the monks pledged the Codex Gigas to a monastery located in Seldek, which is now Chechnya. The note also says that the manuscript was repurchased in the same year for the Benedictine order of the Brevno Monastery. The Codex Gigas was seen as one of the wonders of the world at that time. This information is widely agreed upon between my sources. And of course it would be since the Codex Gigas itself seems to confirm this with the note. However, other sources speculate on who the author might be. Some claim that this book was written by the work of a single monk, often referred to as a Herman the Recluse, who was sentenced to death for breaking his monastic vows. He was walled up alive and as a last gasp for survival, Herman said that he would create a book filled with the world's knowledge in return for his life. His proposal was accepted on the condition that he complete the task in one night. Obviously, this would be impossible for a human. So it's said that Herman sold his soul to the devil to finish this task. And that's why the devil himself is so prominently featured within the Codex Gigas. Obviously, this is legend and I'll be honest, I don't really believe it either. It's just a little too far-fetched. And I'm pretty sure that no one actually made a legitimate pact with the devil to create this, even though there was some obvious commitment involved. In fact, it seems as if the entire legend was actually built on a misinterpretation, a small note in the book that reads Herman Inclusus, many interpreted Inclusus as being walled up, the punishment that Herman faced, though Inclusus more likely means recluse, and that Herman wrote the book out of honor, perhaps out of a pursuit of knowledge, but not fear. And it appears that someone would have had to be a recluse to write this book. National Geographic estimates that even aside from the ornate illustrations, it would have taken someone around 20 to 30 years to write this book, 
or if it had truly been their full-time job, around 40 hours worth of work into it every week, imagine the hand cramping, theoretically, it could then be done in about five years. And for those of you thinking 600 pages shouldn't take that long, just remember that these pages are 36 inches by 20 inches, not the usual 8.5 by 11 that we're used to. Plus the print is incredibly tiny and very detailed in certain places. You can scroll through images of the codex online to see it for yourself, but it's truly impressive. The penmanship and art whoever made this is very talented. As an aside, what do you think they would have done if they'd made a mistake near the bottom of the page after a page had taken days to complete? Because another important and impressive note about the codex is that there are no mistakes whatsoever in it. Some sources say major errors could be made in the copying process in medieval times if a monk didn't understand a particular language, Imagine though, if you had made a mistake at one of the bottom of those things, like I would have just scratched it out and kept moving. Anyway, whoever wrote this likely took decades on it. Again, some sources insist otherwise as the codex has a incredibly unified look throughout showing no signs of age or disease on part of the scribe. Still, most are convinced by the uniformity that it seems most unlikely that one scribe wrote it over his entire lifetime, but why? What's inside the codex gigas that's so important? According to my source, the Codex includes the entire Latin Vulgate version of the Bible, except for the books of Acts and Revelation, which are from a pre-Vulgate version. The entire document is written in Latin. Illustration of the Devil, page 290. The manuscript includes illuminations in red, blue, yellow, green, and gold. Capital letters are elaborately illuminated frequently across the entire page. And by pre-Vulgate, it simply means that these two books of the Bible weren't exactly circulated yet. They weren't purposefully left out as far as we can tell. But for now, let's dig a little deeper into other books that were included in the Codex Gigas. The Antiquities of the Jews and the Jewish War were both written by Joseph Flavius around 37 to 100 AD. Josephus was regarded as a great historian of antiquity by the Christian church and remains the most widely read ancient writer up until the 17th century. So it makes sense that this would be included here. The Antiquities of the Jews describes the Jewish people's history from the creation of the world until 66 AD, and then the Jewish war related to the story of the Jews' rebellion against the Romans, a conflict that took place in 66 to 70 AD. You can find a translated history of these online today, and I actually found the Antiquities of the Jews on Gutenberg's website. Just scrolling through the chapters and parts take time. I can't even imagine like writing this all by hand. Though there can be no understating the influence of Flavius's book, The Judean War either, it has been called perhaps the most influential non-biblical text of Western history. Also in the book is an early encyclopedia. One source explains, Bishop Isidorus of Seville's Eptimology, approximately 560 to 636 AD, was the most popular encyclopedia of the Middle Ages. It was the first encyclopedia produced by a Christian writer without being modeled on ancient Latin literature. The idea was to provide an introduction to the knowledge of antiquity, to instruct the new Christians and to show how the ancient world has led to the advent of the Roman church. Bishop Isidore has also been called the last scholar of the ancient world. So again, there can be no understating the importance of these works that were included. It seems to me that Herman or whoever wrote this was simply trying to take every single massively important and well-researched and respected book of that era and combine it into one. Another non-biblical work included in the book is the Bohemian Chronicle of the Cosmos of Prague, originally penned around 1100. This chronicle is the first work about the history of Bohemia, making it an important source for Czech historiography. 
While it normally runs over 200 pages, the Chronicle fits on only 11 leaves of the Codex Gigas. The Chronicle has been divided into three books, though again, the influence of the books is massive as it is a master work. In writing it, it said that the cosmos is sought to define the Czechs as a nation through history, compel them to think about their political culture and urge reform, justice, and responsibility. The first page of the Codex Gigas also has two Hebrew alphabets with a few additional touches like Church Slavic, Greek, and Gagolitic alphabets as well. Yet aside from these historical and religious texts, the rest of the book is short texts, the confessions of sins, spells, a calendar, a general purpose scribbling. The confession of sins appearing in the Codex Gigas is five pages long, appearing just before the spread of the heavenly city and the devil, though we'll get into those illustrations in just a moment. Lists of sins could be extremely long back in these days, meant to stress man's weakness and inspire fear of committing wicked deeds. It's also said that after the spread appearing in the portrait of the devil has three spells and two magic formulas, perhaps they were placed there to counterbalance the devil. The purpose of the spells is to cure sudden diseases and feverish states, while the formulas describe how to capture thieves using various rituals. A spell is a religious or magical formula whose purpose is to obstruct or overcome evil, misfortune, and disease. In the Middle Ages, spells were used in a variety of contexts, both within and outside the church. If you're intrigued by what this spell is, I'm sorry to disappoint, but it's a bit of a strange one. I can't say I'd recommend anyone with a fever go around reading this. More Against Fevers, Fexes Rx Master Dino. Blood you drink and meat you eat, and in blood you are washed. But collect 150 claws and lie down in a place like a yearling lamb. Sleep now forever and ever, amen. I'm not exactly someone that goes around reading fever spells to begin with, so I don't really have an idea of what's going on there, but hey, I'm just going off translation. It supposedly even contains spells to help epilepsy as well, or even more specific problems like finding a thief. Some suggest that the conjuration or exorcist spells support the idea of it being one scribe that wrote these spells to save his own soul. As for the final significant short text, there's a calendar listing the days on which saints were celebrated and those on which the observant were to commemorate the dates of deaths of people from Bohemia within and outside of the church. It contained about 1,539 obituaries, but only a small fraction, about 2.5% of them have been identified. There's also about 50 different notes that were added over the years, but these seem to fall under the category of little I was here notes with a short comment. Two Czech researchers wrote down their names as recently as the 1800s inside of this book too. So if you ever wrote a little I was here note inside of a library book back in middle school or something, that's essentially what these researchers did. Yet it's that illustration on page 290 that makes this book so incredibly famous. Perhaps it's because this is what feeds into the lore about a monk selling his soul to complete it, or perhaps it's how the devil strangely looks more like a cartoon character to us in present day than the evil incarnate. Yet the National Library of Sweden has a very different take on this and explains the following. The devil is shown alone in an empty landscape. He is crouching with his arms held up. He only has four fingers and toes and wears an Armin loincloth. Armin is usually associated with royalty and its use here is to emphasize the position of the devil as the prince of darkness. The portrait was intended to remind the viewer of sin and evil, the library website continues. It is opposite a page with a representation of the heavenly city and the two pages were deliberately planned to show the advantages of a good life and the disadvantages of a bad one. Portraits of the devil weren't uncommon in medieval art. They're wide ranging. In fact, Satan could appear at any time as a man, animal, creature, or a creation of pure fantasy. Sometimes he was shown as a human, sometimes a beast, you get the idea. 
There was no set specific way to draw or depict the devil in those times. However, rarely was the devil shown alone occupying an entire page. The heavenly city on the left-hand side on page 289 and the devil on page 290 are the only full page pictures in the entire Codex Gigas as well. Whereas if you look up other depictions of Satan from around this time period and in the century to follow, you'll most often see the devil interacting with others in some way. For example, in the work Descent to Hell in 1308, the panel illustrates a story. Jesus is shown breaking down the gates of hell and stepping on an ugly devil, greeting prophets and patriarchs of the Old Testament. Even back in the 10th century, when the idea of selling one soul was a plot of a story of a deacon in his pack with the devil, the devil wasn't depicted alone there either. The same can be said of another story, a 13th century drama called Le Miracle de Theophile, in which this devil bargaining story was expanded upon. This is just my personal opinion, but I believe that in these other writings and paintings, the devil was simply shown alongside others to show he was evil. Whether he was making deals or being crushed, these works told a story. But that's what's unique about the Codex Gigas is that the illustrator simply seemed to lay out two pages and say, hey, here's the heavenly city and here's the devil as the prince of darkness. After all, so many medieval churches and artwork also exist to serve the illiterate. It makes sense that much of the art from those days would have to tell a story. The fact that a Codex Gigas didn't really do this is one aspect of why it's so unusual. Devil imagery expert, Peter Stanford has also scrutinized the image and said that traditionally you would have the devil presiding over hell in an image. But here there's no sign that the devil is in hell at all. People felt very much in the medieval period that life hung by a thread, he explains. And they personified that threat to their continued existence as the devil. And it was the devil they worried about more than God's approval. By making the devil so large to take up an entire page, they were showing the power that the devil had over people's lives. Though the devil's Bible is of course most known for the devil, there's obviously still plenty of pages with fascinating history inside. As for the missing pages, some believe they contained an apocalyptic text known as the devil's prayer, which was intentionally removed to prevent the destruction of the world. This is again, just a myth. Others still claim that when the Codex Gigas was thrown from a burning building, the binding was damaged, knocking those pages loose. Yes, this book, this 160 pound Codex Gigas has been thrown from a burning building before. So let's get into why and the story of the Codex Gigas' travels. Now we know from the first entry in the ledger of the book that it was pawned off. One documentary says that it's a bit ironic the book went there as the book went from an order of black robed monks to white robed ones and the book was given a place of honor near a cemetery. The cemetery allegedly contained soil from Jesus's crucifixion mound. Still possessing these books was like a status symbol in these days, yet it didn't stay there very long as the white robed monks fell to ruin and a bishop ordered the book to be brought back to its original home. Today, the Sedlik Monastery has become known as Bone Chapel a famous mass grave filled with over 30,000 corpses of those who died from the Black Death or the bubonic plague. It's a quite macabre museum now with human bone sculptures, a bone chandelier, and even a bone chalice. The monastery where the Codex Gigas was written was destroyed sometime in the 15th century. It was seen as one of the wonders of the world around this time and about 300 years after the manuscript was pawned in 1295, Emperor Rudolf II in 1594 wanted to expand his collections and intended to loan out the book. I mean that sarcastically. It's said that Rudolf was obsessed with the occult ever since 1564 when he heard a royal horoscope from a royal soothsayer, Nostradamus. The famed French seer predicted Rudolf's father's death and his ascent to the throne. 
After hearing this, Rudolph's obsession grew and bordered on mania. Naturally, the book only fueled his paranoia. The Codex Gigas didn't stay there all that long though. And on the morning of July 16th, 1648, in the last stages of the Thirty Years' War, a Swedish force numbering 100 men scaled Prague's city walls. According to my source, the soldiers managed to take the guards by surprise and were soon joined by 3000 men from the outside in plundering the city. The looting went on for two days. The troops walked off with rich spoils by following a detailed plan. The inventory drawn up during the conquest mentioned hundreds of art books of all kinds. Among them, two world-famous manuscripts, the Codex Gigas and the Codex Argentias, also known as the Silver Bible, which today is kept at the Uppsala University Library. The spoils of war were sent to Sweden and most of the precious books ended up in the palace library. Eventually, the queen took the most precious books with her to Rome when she abdicated, but she chose to leave the Codex Gigas behind. A large part of the spoils that remained in Sweden was subsequently destroyed in various fires while other items were sold at book auctions during the 18th century. Some of the items have been preserved and can now be found mainly at the National Library and the University Libraries of Uppsala and Lund. European libraries today are full of pieces taken as the spoils of war when this was considered lawful. As long as these pieces are preserved, taken care of and learned from, the subject of returning them can remain a little bit complicated although that is an entirely separate matter in of itself. The manuscript became a part of Queen Christina's collections and was placed in the library at Stockholm Palace. Others have also referred to Queen Christina as King Christina because she wasn't the wife of a reigning monarch. She was the reigning monarch and she was raised to and later did take the office of king. Yet Christina left this book behind and Castle Trey Kronar on site where the Stockholm Palace is today and burned down on May 7th, 1697. Of the 24,500 books and 1400 manuscripts there, only 6,000 books and 300 manuscripts were saved. The Devil's Bible was apparently thrown out of the window. It's said that it actually landed on someone below injuring them and the book binding was seriously damaged in the incident. This may simply be another legend though, as the book doesn't have any evidence of melted ink or burns. There are strange burned looking shadows that suggest it could have sustained fire damage, but the pages only occur near the image of the devil. The superstitious say it's the mark of the devil, whereas experts say the logical explanation is that light can effectively tan the animal skins. Since the portrait of the devil has the most stains, as well as the pages around it, This is proof that the devil's image has been turned to more often than any other page. And as a result, the light has tanned it over time. Eventually in 1768, the National Library and the Devil's Bible moved into the newly built Stockholm Palace into a wing that now houses the Bernadotte Library. Then just over a hundred years later, it was moved again. In July, 1871, the foundation for the new library building is laid. Seven years later, the building is complete. This is now Clemming, who had a flair for mystery and drama, struck the final note for the National Library's relocation to its new premises in Hummel Garden. The Codex Gigas makes a special entrance into its new home. On New Year's Day, Chief Librarian Gustav Clemming is said to have walked from the palace towards Hummel Garden, preceded by a caretaker who pulled the mighty devil's Bible along a sleigh. It's now preserved at the National Library of Sweden in Stockholm on display. Their website is actually where I found a lot of information for this episode too. They're a fantastic source if you wanna learn even more about the Codex Gigas in general, and you'll find plenty of their links in my sources. In 2007, the book was loaned out for an exhibition at the National Library of the Czech Republic for several months from September, 2007 to January, 2008. 
Otherwise, it remains in Stockholm on display with digital copies available online. As for if there's any other information about the book, I actually took a look at a National Geographic documentary to see what historians and experts on the topic have to say about it. Dr. Christopher D. Hamill, a fellow of Corpus Christi College in Cambridge, refers to the book as most peculiar, strange, bizarre, inexplicable object. It's said to contain an almost supernatural allure. It has inspired fear as well as an obsession to possess it. Michael Gullick, a paleographer interviewed for the documentary said that, there is no doubt anyone who sees this book in the flesh cannot be unaware it has a certain kind of power. After all, in 2007, when the book was moved, thousands flocked to see it, and this made international headlines. The Codex Gigas is the only book that placed the Bible alongside unholy incantations like exorcisms. It isn't just the spells or the historical writings that make it unusual, but this combination that has never been done before. The documentary also emphasizes that the Codex Gigas was written by one author as books were often written by a single scribe in those days. Though again, this poses even a greater question in terms of time. Anna Wolodarski, a librarian at the National Library of Sweden stated that she's convinced the arrangement of the manuscript, the text, the decoration, the portrait, and the manuscript as a whole, all of it holds many secrets and significance. Michael and Anna are shown in the documentary trying to dissect the secrets of this book, first following the ink to see if the pigments and chemical signature of the book could reveal anything. If the Codex Gigas was a work of one scribe, it should reveal one ink type, either a metal ink or an ink made from crushed insects. Under an ultraviolet light, metal inks will radiate darkly, while insect lights are much less intense. The evidence points to the Codex using insect ink, So if this really was the work of one scribe, chances are they wouldn't suddenly change to a different kind of ink. Of course, that doesn't mean it's impossible another scribe could have come in and used the same insect ink, but still, it's worth testing to see if two fundamentally different ink types were used. Although Peter Stanford is featured in this documentary, the devil imagery expert we mentioned earlier, and he describes elements of the classic depiction of the devil, another expert is also featured with a slightly different perspective. Christopher de Hamel is convinced that the author wasn't actually a master craftsman making a point, but a gifted amateur. He wants it bigger, fatter, more extraordinary than ever done before, Hamel explains when discussing the image of the devil. He says that there's also evidence for this in the book's calligraphy as they're beautiful, painstaking, but unsophisticated and likely self-taught. Traditionally, master scribes collaborated in a room called scriptorium, exchanging methods and techniques. The Devil's Bible, when compared to other manuscripts and books at that time, looks antiquated, like someone who may have taught themselves to write. To say that he's an early Gothic nerd, he says, is actually the most accurate description. How interesting would this be if this coveted, respected book was actually just written by an amateur as a passion project? Again, we can't be sure, but a part of me honestly kind of wishes it's true because I love the idea of that. Anna and Michael examined the Devil's Bible again using graphography and studying the handwriting. They look to see if there's slight differences in the lettering, the slants, the angles, the pressure, etc. They found that the letter G was written in a unique way for the time. The bottom half of the G in a short bowl shape, not closed off like one would expect for this calligraphy. This consistency of writing paired with the other evidence such as the consistent ink and the controversial content proved to be that this is the work of one single scribe. It seems most likely that this was the reported Herman the Recluse, a monk who wished to be left alone to write a book that would contain all human knowledge to honor his monastery for all of time. Even so, we may not ever know for certain. 
But with all of that being said, that's where I'm going to end today's episode of Prism of the Past. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, make sure that you're liking, following, and subscribing so that you can stay up to date on all the latest episodes. And if you want to connect with me outside of these episodes, make sure that you're clicking on my Linktree link in my description box that will have links for all of my social media, including my Twitch, Twitter, Discord server, Instagram, you name it, it's pretty much gonna be there. So again, thank you all for making it to another episode. I hope you enjoyed it and I'll see you in the next one. Bye.